There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace, and today we're going to do a different format than usual. It's going to be a call-in show, so listeners can call in with any question you have about leadership or expertise or career management, for that matter. The number, if you want to call in, is 866-472-5790, and if you're outside the U.S., it's plus one, 866-472-5790. Before we open the lines, I want to say a couple of words about the intent behind this radio show, the notion of getting out of the comfort zone. And I want to start with this distinction between expert and non-expert leadership, two very distinctly different ways of leading. Everywhere in the world, experts are increasingly valued, especially in a knowledge economy, whether it's IT or risk or legal or compliance or a market segment or an operation or a manufacturing capability. Even engineering isn't just engineering anymore. It's engineering with a specialty in a particular metal or a particular type of drilling, all the way down to the customer service. When we go to recruit from outside, we typically recruit someone who has been there and done that, meaning we're recruiting an expert to come in and lead a group. Now, as an expert, it sets up largely a command and control type of leadership. Done nicely, please. I don't want any dictators. They don't tend to last very long. But the fundamental principle is you know what to do and how to do it, for the most part, as much as anybody does. Your job as an expert leader is to coach people, yes, of course, to question them, to develop them, and to give them feedback. But you're doing that from a base of basically knowing what needs to happen and how it needs to happen. And if you're leading a young team or a team that has a little experience in an area, then it we do really need a knowledgeable expert leader to develop and grow that team. However, as the role expands or as the team develops, now becomes the time to step outside of the expertise. And it used to be that you would take experts very young in the organization and then put them into general management, non-expert roles. The world today isn't that simple. First off, we find expert leaders quite high in the organization, and we rarely have it as black and white. It's largely a what I call a straddle role, meaning some of both. There's some part of your world where you're the expert, and there's some part of your world where you can no longer be or never will be the expert. So if the expert's job is about knowing and doing, the non-expert leader's job is about enabling, and that is the influence and strategic thought and ambiguity and executive presence and developing the team and still have to give feedback and hold people accountable. It's not that you give up control, but you don't do it from a base of knowing exactly what to do and how to do it. This straddle role, though, is actually the hardest of all to master because it is a balance of some of both. And it's tough. I want you to use new skills and I want you to use old skills. It's a matter of asking which hat am I wearing when and for how long. And I give you my favorite question to ask to understand your balance in the role that you're in, and that is the percentage of time. What percentage of my time am I expected to spend in my expert position producing, developing clients, um, producing product, and what percent am I expected to be leading in a more non-expert way? Many of my senior managing directors in financial services are even still in a straddle role where 80% of their time is in production and 20% is in leading. And if you're on law firm, I suspect that that's closer to a 90-10 balance. So this is not one or the other. It's how do we get comfortable with both and recognize which is needed when. Okay, and so I'm going to open the lines now for our callers. Again, if you'd like to call in outside the U.S., plus one, inside the U.S., 866-472-5790. And I think we have Laura on the line from Germany. Hello, Wanda. Can you hear me? Hi, Laura. Yeah, indeed. Carry on. 
Hey, uh, good afternoon, Wanda. My name is Laura. I work for a large financial service provider in Europe. I'm a big fan of your show, and I have a question for you today related to the first 90 days in a new role. Over the last nine years, I was very successful in my leadership role, and I had an opportunity to create a new global function at the group level. Due to my desire to try new things, things and to take a new challenge outside of my comfort zone and my core area of expertise, three weeks ago, I have accepted a new offer, a project management role in a totally new area in a new division, in another division. The, the benefits of this new assignment is that it is very exciting and challenging topic related to artificial intelligence. And there is a big support by top senior management of this division. And there is an outlook that the project management role will be converted into a permanent leadership role and a new unit will be set up if the project will deliver a business case for this. So there is an opportunity to create a new working environment and a new function. However, there is no guarantee that the project will be converted into a new function, so that potentially I have to look for a new job in one year. My old boss and mentor gave me already one piece of advice. He said, remember, it is not about performance. Performance and project deliverables matter only to 30%, a maximum 50%. You have to ensure that your project sponsor is emotionally engaged and has a vested interest to keep you in this role in the long run and to create a new function out of this project. Therefore, my question to you, Wanda, today is how to achieve this? What should I focus on in the first 90 to 180s? What are the key success factors and preconditions to assure that the project management role will be converted into a permanent role? And how to ensure that my project sponsor is emotionally engaged? Okay. Well, Laura, congratulations first on the new role and getting out of the comfort zone. Well done. That's the first step. Okay. Now, I'm going to say both for you, Laura, and for people who are in a similar role, this notion of taking a non-permanent position feels scary and risky, and it is. It's perfectly okay, even if it doesn't convert to a permanent role, if you can tell a good story about what you're learning and why you see that as an opportunity. So, for example, in your case, this is a step out of your comfort zone, out of your zone of expertise, and it's a nice case to show, yes, I can do it, even if it's only a year-long project. So don't be afraid of that. That's okay. The second thing is I would tell you, you got the wrong question. Quit focusing on how to get this converted to a permanent role and focus much more on what needs to happen in the role. So how to get your senior sponsor emotionally engaged. You need to understand what that senior leadership is expecting, hoping for, caring about. So my questions would be for your project sponsor, what do they really, really care about? Why are they supporting this? Why do they think this is a good thing? And what are they hoping it will achieve for them? If you answer those three questions and, you know, in their first 90 days, that's what you spend time searching for. And then you talk with your sponsor about those questions, not about the details and not about the problems and not about the project management and not about the long-term permanent job. You talk about the solutions you are providing, the ways in which you are helping solve issues that have cropped up that are in the interest of what your project sponsor cares about, why they want it, and what they're hoping will happen for it. And then whatever happens after that will be fine. Okay? So now, and now yep. so that's one part of it. Okay, now the second thing, I want to go to say a second thing here. One of the risks anybody taking a project management role has is it's a bit of a testing ground. It's a bit of a testing ground of can we get this thing that you've been assigned to do done, scoped, scaled? Does it look feasible within our business unit? You're hoping that that leads to a permanent leadership role that you will have. And it may indeed lead to a permanent leadership role that somebody else has. 
So to make sure you are a candidate for that leadership role, you need to be sure that your senior leadership sees you as the head, not just the project management person. So we need to see you as the strategic thinker. We need you to see as the person who's dealing with the complexity and ambiguity and so on. Okay, so it all comes back down to understanding what that sponsor really wants to see happening and talk accordingly. Now you asked me, I want to ask this one last question here. You ask me for the first 90 days, and I don't get focused on 180, 90 days. You have the opportunity in 90 days to ask questions you can't ask or ask a day 91. So it needs to be focused on who are your stakeholders, what are their opinions, what do they think needs to happen, what do they hope won't happen, what's the one piece of advice they would give you, and you're in an absolute learning mode so that after 90 days, you can scope the space of what you think is feasible, possible, who's engaged, how to keep them engaged, and so on. And the last thing I'll say to you, when you ask what are the key success factors, I'm going to tell you again, you're asking the wrong question. Because that is about, you know, if I've done this and I've done this and I've done this and I've done this, like a grading system, then check you're the candidate. And that completely misses the point about emotionally engaged. So stay focused on what your sponsor is hoping to achieve and how you are helping him or her achieve that. Okay? Yes. Thank right. you very much, Wanda. Thanks, Very Lauren. clear. Thank you. Okay. All right. I'm going to go to Sam from the U.K., Hi, Wanda. Great to hear you and um, really good to hear some of your advice as you're going through the first 90 days. Um, my question is perhaps linked to what you were talking about at the outset of this show around expertise as a leader. So generally, as we start out in our careers, you tend to start with some area of interest or specialist area, and that's where you build up that knowledge of expertise, as you've been describing. And then as you progress to leadership, you tend to then, as you say, need to be more generalist and you focus more on the coaching and guiding. I think now what I'd be interested to hear is your perspective of, with the constant sort of organisational changes we see nowadays, the need is more about sort of keeping focused on keeping your skills and experience relevant, so your employability. So, and also then I think because organisations change so much, you know, we may find that we're probably changing our the direction of careers probably two, three, or even four times in our lifetime. So I'd just be really interested to hear your perspective on how do you sort of navigate the need to keep your skills relevant as a leader um, and you know, move yourself out of the comfort zone. And um, so how do you keep that balance, really, of keeping relevant to moving out of the comfort zone, but really managing that challenge of change and perhaps the need to develop multiple careers across your lifetime? Okay, so let me take that in two parts, Sam. Really, really important question. If you don't stay relevant to your business, period, I don't care whether you're an expert or a non-expert or a straddle role, you are in trouble. The question is, what skills are relevant? And the tendency is to believe that in times of organizational change, what you're going to do is just to drill down and focus in on your technical expertise that nobody else can do. And you kind of create a funnel, I mean, a, like a little cocoon around yourself that feels safe. The problem with that is the organization can move right past you. It's a day, it doesn't work nearly as effectively as it sounds like it should. So, so um, instead, what I'd love to have you do is look outside just the expertise itself and ask the question, what I know from a technical point of view, which of this is most relevant today? I'll give you an example. Digital is becoming hot everywhere. You may have a particular expertise, but have you thought about the digital angle for that and get that skill up, know that, have an opinion on it, focused on it, Okay. Second thing, don't ignore all the other kind of skills that are incredibly relevant. So I don't want you to give up your expertise. Remember, it's a straddle world. But equally, I want you to develop these other skills, the ability to deal with the gray and the ambiguity and to present a strategic perspective and to handle messy problems and conflict and um, to gain the trust and confidence of people who don't necessarily know you at the outset. It's all that human relationship stuff. When you put those two together, 
and you make sure that people know what you're doing, what you're capable of doing, where you can go, you're about as well protected as you can get in the current environment. Nobody's ever perfectly protected. So I think, Sam, the short answer to this one is make sure that the technical skills you have stay relevant. Don't just do the technical skills. Look at some of the relationship skills in addition. Okay, now your second question is about changing direction and career. And yeah, we see a lot about that in the press of people changing direction. And yeah, if you find yourself in a position where you're getting stale or you're getting bored, then um, absolutely do not make, or sorry, absolutely do make a change. The worst thing you can do is to stay in something because you think that that expertise gives you a cover. You'll get to be lousy at it because you're not having any passion for it. Okay, so Sam, did I get most of your question there? You did, yeah. If you don't mind recapping the second one, please. Thank you. The second one. All right, so recap really quickly. Changing careers is perfectly fine. Do it, particularly if you are not passionate about where you are. That's the time to begin to make a change. It's nice if you can tell a story about I was here and I used that skill to move to here and I used the skill to move to there. That makes a credible um, story. But after that, you know, it's a matter of taking the skills that you have. Many of these skills are fungible, meaning they do transfer in nice ways. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you. All right. Um, I'm going to take one more before we try to take a break, and that will be John from New Jersey. Hi. How are you doing? I'm fine, John. How are you? Very good. I, I did have a question around the topics you've been discussing, and it's something very dear to me. Um, I'm a manager, and as a manager, I, I always struggle with trying to get the best out of my staff. But at the same time, being friends with them, um, making sure that we're all having a good time together, be it lunch or dinners and everything else. Um, how do you balance being a good manager and getting the most out of your staff and at the same time having a friendship as well? Uh, is it too much to ask that you're different at work and different outside of work? Or is there a bridge that you can't just turn it on and off and you have to be the same in both and find a way to be able to do both? Okay. All right. I say to people all the time, John, when they say I'm different at work and different outside of work, and I say that's how we define schizophrenia. So I don't believe we personality wise all that dramatically different at home and at work. I think some of the, you know, some of the styles of your personality will show up in both places. And it's much more fun if you feel more of an integrated personality. So I, it's easier. If you're trying to go to work and be a different person, that is just way too much stress on top of the job. So I worry less about that one. This question, though, about being friends with your staff is one I hear all the time. And certainly I would say you want to create a friendly environment where people know each other, they have a good time with each other, there's respect and trust and camaraderie. That's what makes for a great team, absolutely. But if that tips over the balance where you ha can no longer hold people accountable for what they've done or not done or give them tough feedback, then it's tipped too far. And I don't think that's too much to ask if you think about it not as a block on white, but as a continuum. And you want to be somewhere kind of, you know, on the friend side, but not so deeply that it's hard to give a tough message, that you hesitate to give that tough message. You want to build trust and camaraderie and not best friends. I will say, I see, and I hear the consequences of this all the time, for managers who are best friends with somebody who works for them, meaning their families get together, their kids know each other, they're always out on the weekend doing activities of one form or another with each other at the golf course or in the gym or whatever the format may be. And that creates stress for the rest of the team because it feels unequal. And in truth, it is unequal. The person that sees you on the weekend has a different kind of access to you than everybody else in the team. So, so long as you keep that informal access a little bit more balanced, I think you're in safe ground. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Okay. All right. Fabulous. We're going to take a two-minute break here really briefly, and I will be right back with our next caller.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. We're glad you've joined us. Today, we're doing a call-in show. Um, Again, if you'd like to call in with a question, it's 866-472-5790. And if you're calling in from outside the U.S., put a plus one in the front of that one. Okay, and I think we have somebody on the line already, Denise from North Carolina. Hi, Wanda. Um, It's great to talk to you. Um, I have a question. Sorry, I have a question um, having to do with leadership style. Um, Taking a new position, taking on a new team that's very um, immature from an experience perspective. Um, By what I mean by that is not having been in a larger company doing enterprise type work, understanding what good looks like. But I also have a culture uh, across the business of of a strong culture of learned helplessness. So what I'm interested in is any coaching or advice you have around how do you balance keeping them empowered, but also having to give them direction, specific direction because of that learned helplessness. Yeah. Well, one of the things I say, Denise, is you have to live within the culture of the company that you are a part of. So, and if you create your group as a microculture completely divorced from the rest of the company culture, you're at risk of sliding you and the team right out the door because you become kind of like a cancer that we have to get rid of because it's destroying the rest of us. Now, you know, as you rise in the organization, as you get more seniors, you have a larger team, you can hope you can begin to influence that culture, but you can't turn it inside out overnight. So, and those are the kind of conversations I'd be having with their team. I'd be having team with them, conversations with them about, yes, I want you to make decisions, but let's talk about which decisions you can make and when you have to get approval and how you sell that decision before you make the final call. So you're teaching them how to work within the culture that you have inherited, which is uh, I want to make sure we've got all the I's dotted and T's crossed before anybody is okay to move on with anything. I think that's what you mean by learned helplessness. So a little slow to make a decision. Yeah. Yeah. What I mean by learned helplessness is more so um, they're not empowered to make decisions on their own. So it's they've been dictated to so much. They're, they're in the yeah. place of, okay, fine, I'll just wait till somebody tells me what to do. But yeah. I want to empower them, but they're also very immature with their experience, so there's that balance. Okay. See, I think one of the things that we've gotten wrong on empowerment is that we tend to say to people, here, you are empowered, go make the decision. And the truth in most organizations, it's way more complicated than that. You can, you have some authority to make that decision if you've sold it, if you've talked to the right people, if you bought in the right stakeholders, if you've done the right processes, if it's been a good journey coming to that conclusion. And this notion that you just go get to make the decision on your own, it's kind of, it just doesn't happen anymore. There's too much complexity and too much interdependence. So I'd get your team focused on your team in specific, focused on small decisions a step along the way. 
So if you think about they're not ready to make a big decision because they think they're going to kill for making that big decision, then go to a small decision and you have to coach them at the first step. All right. So the first step, we've got to decide or what our deadline is going to be for this project and who our stakeholders are going to be or how we're going to inform them. Something very small. And I would have you ask them, what do you think? Why do you think that's a good reason? How have you considered this? Who have you talked to? You coach them with the questions you ask. And then you can turn to them and say, it sounds to me like you have a good decision. Go ahead. But you've not just left them out on their own. You're kind of like gently leading them into a new world. And then after they've done that three or four times, it can be a little bit bigger decision that you can let them go on, but you must teach them to fit that within the culture of the organization or else they will die. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thank you for calling in. Okay. And I don't think we have any callers right at the moment. If you would like to call in again, the number is 866-472-5790. And if you're calling from the outside, the U S it's plus one eight six six four seven two five seven nine zero. Um, I have a couple of questions that have been submitted by email, so I'm going to tackle two or three of those right at this moment. So I have one person who says, I'm a technical expert and a developer in IT, and I keep getting passed over for promotion. I've got a small team. I spend a lot of time with them, but one of them is my boss's friend and seemed to have his ear. What am I doing wrong? Very similar to the question we had earlier from John, except on the opposite side of it. And it is true. When the boss is best friends with somebody on your team, it makes for a very awkward situation. It's hard to know. You feel uncomfortable in that one. So first thing I'm going to say to our caller or the email writer, his name is Paul, is it's not necessarily that you are doing anything wrong. And I will admit it is a tough situation. So here's my advice is to befriend both the boss and the person that's on your team. And by befriend, I mean build the trust that both of them have in you. Build a relationship with both of them. What you want is to both of them to like you, to respect you, to trust you so that they won't do anything without talking to you about it. And if there is a conflict, you make it a whole lot easier for each of them to come to you. When you've done that, when you've built that relationship and you've built that trust, and I don't mean you have to spend time with them on the weekend, but you have to build a fundamental trust, the quality of the relationship, the camaraderie in the relationship. After you've built that, then it's okay to say to the boss, hey, I feel like you're overstepping um, into managing my team. This makes me uncomfortable when you have this conversation with my team member on the weekend. What can we do about it? Or what can I do about it? You don't want to do that in attacking or blaming. You want to own it and say, it makes me uncomfortable. What can we do about it? I think if you do those steps, you're going to find that everybody is a lot more comfortable and you're going to be seen as a much stronger leader along the way. Okay, we have a caller on the line, Ashley from the U.S. Ashley, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you. Um, I'm a partner in a national law firm, and while I have certainly come to believe that while we may think that staying in our comfort zone keeps us safe, that it probably really just keeps us small, I would really appreciate your insight about ways to lead team members, in my case, co-owners, other partners, toward embracing steps outside the comfort zone. Yeah. Uh, especially in a partnership firm and a service firm, that is a challenge because you know that your value is ultimately driven by the production that you produce. So, you know, partners are right in that, that if they get too far away from production, there's going to be a hard question about why do we keep you as a partner in the firm? So they're right, but I think it's a matter of balance. It's a matter of what proportion of time do you want to see people spending outside of their comfort zone. So I'll give you an example. When I talk with some of my law firm clients, I often talk to them about the ways in which partners need to lead that are not formal ways. So the mentoring of younger partners that are not necessarily working for you, but they're in broader areas. 
or the need to be part of recruiting or the need to be part of corporate services or the need to have a weigh in on a committee or a process or whatever. Talk to them about the opportunities to lead in small ways that um, make a difference to the success of your firm. And help them. Then I think the next big thing is to help them understand. You know, look, I'm asking for 10% of your time. I'm asking you to take 10% of where you spend on this thing and spend it over here so it creates leverage. And in a partnership firm, leverage is that word that everybody loves. Then the final thing I think about this one, Ashley, is helping people see the skills. Now, when it's your fellow partners, this is a hard one to do. When it's the younger partners, it's an easier process. So I find if you can teach people the skills they need to lead and teach them in smaller ways, it becomes less daunting to consider taking on a bigger role in the leadership capacity that's outside of the expertise zone. So things like Talk to them about um, what makes for success in later years. Talk about partners that they admire in the firm and what distinguishes those partners from all the rest. Talk about um, the ways in which they influence people in their client base and how do we bring that same brilliant capability internally to influence the business to do better things, bigger things, more important things. Um, and again, the best thing I can say to you, I agree with you, is it keeps you small and it keeps the firm from being the best that it can be because you really do want those partners kind of stepping up and taking some accountability for some of the bigger issues that make it a better firm at the end of the day. Does that help with your question? It does. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for the question. All right. And we have Jane from New York. Good morning or good afternoon, Wanda. Um, thanks for taking time um, to answer my question. I'm concerned about whether or not I should be willing to take a step back in my career. I've been offered a role that um, is below where I should be, um, but with the promise that if I take the role and do it for less than two years, I will leapfrog to two positions up. The CEO will put it in writing for me, but I'm really concerned about my reputation because I think to many people it's going to look like a demotion. Um, the reason for the role is because I am being, it's part of a transition from a staff function at central office to a business role. And the role itself is very interesting in terms of content, and it will have a big impact on the business. It, I'll be at the center of the digital transformation of a business unit. But still, I can't imagine a man at my level like I said, I report to the CEO. I can't imagine a man being asked to take this role. Um, so I'm just not really sure what to do. Okay. All right. So there's many parts to this one. Let me kind of unpack a couple of them in the first place. So the first thing I'm going to say is congratulations for transitioning from the staff to a business role. That kind of broadening experience is critical for progressing careers for the long run. So absolutely a good move, and it's a move too few women understand early enough in their career, and so it makes them less credible at senior levels because they've never been outside the function. So good for you for doing that. Now, the second question, though, the next part of this one is you feel like this step is a demotion. All right. If you're working for the CEO and you're working in a staff functional role for the CFO, CEO, Anything other than the head of a business unit is going to be a demotion. It is yes. just the facts of the case. And, I, you know, too bad. I think any senior guy would understand or any guy with a long-term career perspective would understand that that staff function was brilliant. And I now have to step down to get out of the staff function and now to move forward in a different business line. And they would not talk about it as a demotion. They wouldn't say it was a demotion. They wouldn't say anything about it. They would say, I loved working for the CEO, mm -hmm. and I'm really excited about the opportunity this new role presents. And that's it. I find that for lots of people, lateral, which we're talking about is fundamentally a lateral move, not so much a demotion. It, that lateral is how is where the game is anyway. It's not just up the curve, and especially if it's something you're excited about, fabulous. 
And it's how you talk about the lateral move that leads people to determine whether they think it's a demotion or not. So when people say to you, oh, don't you feel like this is a demotion? You say, no, I don't. It's a great opportunity. And if you just take that positive spin and run with it, you're going to find everybody starts repeating that all over the place. And the emotion word is out the door. Um, second great. thing you can do that would reassure you is if you have a mentor or a sponsor outside of the CEO and outside of the person you might now be reporting to, get their advice. Do they think this sounds like a demotion or not? I have a feeling that you're going to get the word of absolutely not. It sounds great. Now, I want to caution you about a couple of things. First off, you said that the person is willing to put it in writing. That's great, but be careful with that. Promises have a way of evaporating. Not because somebody is lying to you, because the world changes. So the person who promises this and put it in writing may not be there in two years. And then what do you do? Or the function that you go to join or the group that you go to join could suddenly get dissolved or sold off or split or any number of things that happen. So there's never a guarantee. And that makes it okay anyway because it's outside of your functional role. It's into a business area that's a taught one and it's a really important component. Hopefully it's working for a group that you're very excited about working for and it will broaden your base. So it's the right thing to do. It's nice that there's a promise, but you kind of can't take that to the bank. Okay. Now the last part of your question I want to address is would a man at your level be asked to take the step backwards? And the answer is absolutely yes. I know several men who have been in um, sort of like chief of staff roles for CEOs And they know that they're going to be in that role for two, maybe three years. And they know that that gives them huge access to people and a great network and wonderful things. But it's not a permanent resting spot. So they start then looking for what's my next move. And the next move is going to be working for someone else that works for the CEO or even down a bit. So it can be even quite a step down. No questions asked because that's how they build a craft path of a successful career. Okay, that was very reassuring. Thanks so much for your help, Wanda. All right, good luck with the job. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Okay, and um, if you would like to call into the show, it's 866-472-5790. I have a few more questions that have come in on um, by email, so I'm going to try to address a couple of those until we get another caller. Um, so the first question is, has to do with how you prepare for a difficult conversation. So the most common situation seems to be where there's a very difficult message that has been given and it's built up over time that needs to be given and, is, and hasn't been given. It's built up over time and the feedback has now become not very specific. For instance, um, somebody has reached a block in their career And they aren't demonstrating the potential for the next stage. And often it's hard for a manager to put why into words. And the feedback may be something very general, like it's the style is not a fit, or I just don't see this person at the next level, or they don't have the right impact, or they need more gravitas or more time or more experience. And so the manager waits to see if there's clearer feedback, and it builds up and builds up and builds up into one big conversation that the manager then feels incapable of addressing. So how do you prepare for this conversation? And the first thing I'm going to say to you is, if you are this manager, please do not wait. If I'm working for you and you are not telling me along the way the things that I need to be doing, you've now made it impossible for me to fix it. So as hard as it is, give me the clues along the way. Don't wait because that's just painful on everybody, you and me. The second thing I'm going to say is you do have to get it to be very specific. And the way to get it to very be very specific is think about a particular situation, just one, in which whatever the person did wasn't what you'd hoped they would do. And now give me the feedback about the specific situation and drop that label. Drop the gravitas or more time or not a fit, because I don't know how to fix that. I don't know what that means. But you can give me the specific situation. So you can say, for example, Wanda, I'd like to give you this feedback. When we were in that conversation with the senior manager 
and the senior manager asked you a question about X and you hesitated to answer that question directly and then took a long time to get the answer and didn't make eye contact. Now I, as a recipient, know exactly what you're talking about. I know what it is in my behavior I need to change. I can get it. I don't need a label on that. All you need to say is, that didn't have a positive impact. Okay, I got it. Now I can turn to you, the manager, and say, great, can you coach me on how else I could have handled that? And now we have a great conversation. Do that three, four, five times. Now, as an employee, I'm starting to get what you mean by style is not a fit, and I know what to do about it. So it's a matter of breaking that conversation into small bites, taking it down to specific situations, and being concrete in the actions. Okay, and I think we have another caller on the line from Florida. Hi, this is Denise. Um, really enjoying your show, Wanda. Thank you. Um, I have a question Thanks, about Denise. my team. Um, I manage a very high-performing team, and um, I have an employee who's moved up sort of very quickly in, in competence and in his abilities. Um, my question is, how do I really position this employee with the senior leadership um, who thinks he's a great employee but doesn't necessarily believe he's ready right now for promotion? Um, so it's more about really positioning him and and getting him to uh, to be seen the same way that I see him in the yeah. organization. I can't tell you how many times I see people trying to get an employee promoted and the manager hasn't done the homework and the employee doesn't get promoted, not because of the employee's mistake, but because the manager hasn't done the homework. So the first First thing I'm going to say to Denise to you, whether you've done this or not, is here's the sort of checklist of the things you need to be doing. You need to be talking about that employee on an ongoing, regular basis. So you need to, and it just drop it into the conversation with your senior managers. And so you would say, I was working with John yesterday. He did a great job on analyzing this particular process. Or we were with this client and John handled that brilliantly. You just want to drop little tiny specific things steadily, regularly into the conversation with your senior leadership over a period of time. And I often use the word drip feed. It's it's that drip feed that has the real impact that people start to see John. Oh, John can do things differently. Oh, well, great. Now, after you've done that for, and this is a long-term process. This is not a one month. We're talking about after you've done this about three months, then it's time to put John in front of the senior leaders in a small, appropriate way. So let's say that you have a conference call scheduled and you would normally handle that conference call, but it's John's area and you're going to ask John to take a part of that conference call of what you would normally say. So you can't abdicate your responsibility. You have to open it and you have to say, look, we're here to talk about and I want to say X, Y, and Z and our focus is really here and here's what I want to get to. There's some details about this that I'd like you to hear from John. So John, and that gives him a chance to present in a clear, concise, strategic, more senior level, a little more exposure. Now, this works because you've been drip feeding all along. John is different, folks. You need to see him. Now people will start to see him in a completely different light. Um, does that make sense, Denise? Uh, yes, absolutely. Okay, so it's a matter of, so you have to really start to kind of like flag the people. Here's what he's doing that's great. Here's what he's doing that's great. Here's what he's doing that's great. And then they're ready to see it in him in a different way. Now, equally, I will say there's a second half of this story because I see this all the time. There may be something about John that your senior leadership is not confident about and they're right to not be confident. And so you, Denise need to kind of really tune into that and understand what is it that they see is missing and kind of check, you know, is that a perception issue or is that a skill John really needs to work on? So it's two halves of that equation. Yeah, it's an interesting claim. Um, sometimes people tend to hold on to their first impressions of someone even after they've, um, you know, they've changed and they've advanced. So getting them to move on from that um, is a challenge. It is a challenge. It is absolutely a challenge. And we all do it as human beings. We make a snap judgment and it sticks. Some of us, it sticks for forever and a few 
few of us every now and then can change after a few years. Uh, I always say that when it's a perception issue as opposed to a skill issue, that you change the perception by changing the conversation. So you have to focus on what is the conversation that John or you are having with senior leaders. Change that conversation and you can begin to change the perception, but it won't happen overnight. It didn't get there immediately and it's going to take some time to kind of work it through the system. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Okay. I want to try to tackle a couple of more of our questions that have come in um, from email. And one of these I get all the time, which has to do with this difference between leader and being a manager. So people often talk about being a leader as different to being a manager. And the question is, does this matter? And if so, when? And how would you define the differences and when are they important for someone to think be thinking about? Now, I, I'm going to be a little controversial on this one, but I'm going to absolutely give you my honest opinion about this. I don't believe that leadership and management are that distinguishable. I believe that they're all part of a continuum and that they belong together. So to quote from Henry Mintzberg, who wants to be led by somebody who can't manage or worse, who wants to be managed by somebody who can't lead. The ways you lead are how you manage. So if you take things like management means giving feedback and making sure all the administrative things are done, like performance reviews, that the reports are turned in on time, that things are scheduled and that you're following up, thank you very much. Would everybody please do that? I don't see why that's, that is, those are your tools for leading, for gaining credibility, for getting trust, for having integrity, for having impact. So I don't see this arbitrary distinction between management and lead leadership. I think they're all part of the same package. And equally, I do not believe that leadership is the realm of the senior leaders, seniors in the organization. Absolutely not. Not anymore. Not in the world that we live in. So it's never too early to begin thinking about how you manage and lead. Now, for a lot of young people, I know, particularly millennials, there's a lot of anxiety about, I need to show leadership, I need to show leadership, I need to have a formal leadership role, meaning I need to have people who report to me. That's what I mean by formal. That is old school. The new world is about being able to lead without formal authority. So that ability to influence people, to get done what you need to be done, to have a voice, to be respected, to be heard, is all leading without formal authority. And I don't care how young you are in the organization, you have dozens of ways of showing your ability to lead in an informal way. So things like running a charity event or running recruiting, or being part of the recruiting team, or organizing recruiting, or organizing a team event, or um, doing a report writing where there are multiple people coming together. Even though you don't formally own it, you can lead in those moments without formal authority. The ways you communicate about what's happening in meetings, or get the communication going. So it's no longer that we need to be looking at leadership, showing leadership, being a good leader, as anything other than influencing to the outcome that you think is good and it doesn't have to be formal. Um, so that's the answer to that one, that question. And let me tackle one more question. Again, if you'd like to call in, it's 866-472-5790. Um, so Second question, and related to one we've already addressed, says, the person says, I work hard. I put in extra hours in the weekend. My manager says my work is very good. I like it when I get a lot of things done, but now I'm told it's not enough. It's between me and another person for this upcoming project, and I'm not sure I'm going to get it. Is there anything I can do? Well, the first thing you're going to have to do is to understand what the problem really is. And that means you taking a hard look in the mirror, and it also means having some difficult conversations with your manager. Now, most likely your manager is not going to be very comfortable with those conversations. So if you want to really have a shot at this project or the one after it, then you're going to have to make it easy for the manager to tell you the truth. So the first thing I'm going to say for you for this upcoming project, what is it your manager is really looking for? 
on the project? What do they really, really need? And let me do this by way of a story. I'm going to tell you a story about two people that I've worked with, Joe and Jim. We would say of Jim that he's a bit of a fretter, you know, the the devil is in the details kind of, and technically brilliant, technically very, very strong, loved by clients. Everybody thinks that he is a great uh, technical expert and valued for that. Joe, on the other hand, is a bit of a go-getter. He's a bit of a yes, I'll get that done, I can make it happen, but he's really good at going out and getting stuff done. And not necessarily because Joe is the expert, but Joe gets a bunch of people on board and moves things and organizes and structures it and talks about it and makes it happen. So now I would ask you, if I have a project that I want somebody to take the lead on and I'm the boss, who would you pick? Joe, the go-getter, or Jim, the fretter? Most people, if you're honest, would pick Joe, the go-getter, and hope that he would tap Jim's knowledge. But you don't want somebody reporting to you who's going to be fretting all the time. It takes a ton of effort. So my first thing, so this person who's written in, my first thing is try to figure out what is it the manager really is hoping for in this upcoming project. And then your job is to show that you can do it. Now, you can say... I understand, manager, that you're looking for somebody who is not so much of a worry wart, and I know I can be a bit of a worry wart, but let me tell you how I'm going to tackle that. So give me the game plan that shows how you're going to manage this and not be such of a worry wart this time. Or you might say, look, manager, I can't, I'm not 100% certain about what it is you're looking for this role. Talk to me about your aspirations for who is ever leading this project. What do you think are the biggest challenges? And listen. And then the last thing I'm going to say to you is whatever the manager tells you, I don't care if you think it is ridiculous, do not argue. You want the manager to gain trust and confidence in you. Arguing is seen as defensive and it will backfire in an absolutely total way. So don't do it. Totally wrong mistake. And I hope to our writer that that's enough advice to help you out. Okay, great show today. Lots of questions. And these are the kind of questions that I think are incredibly important as you're navigating this expert, non-expert continuum, and particularly as you're learning to do the straddle. A bit of the expert and a bit of the non-expert. I said at the very beginning, and I'll say again, one of the important questions to ask your senior leaders, your managers, your mentors is proportion. How much of my time should I be focused on being the expert, knowing the answers, guiding people, directing them in a kind and coaching way? And how much of my time should I be out of my comfort zone where I'm not the expert and I'm leading in a different way? It's a very, very important question. And then get focused on which one are you doing, when, and how. All right. And that concludes our show for today. Thank you for all the questions and the call-ins. Next week, we're going to be talking about conflict. Lynn Curry is going to be my guest, and we're going to be focusing on those personalities that make you stressed and always lead to conflict and how do you deal with some of those situations. So join us next week. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.